Why do you think investigators are putting so much focus on you right now? I have not a clue. Because they, I think it's because they said I was the last person to talk to her, is what they've told me. Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing domestic violence, child abuse, crimes against children, as well as the murder of two teenaged girls. The details may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Anyone charged is considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Everything discussed, unless released by law enforcement, should be considered speculation. Hey everyone, this week I decided to cover Kagan Anthony Klein. This can be considered as a part two of our Delphi episode, um, which is chapter three, uh, but I felt like there was enough information on Kagan and his own crimes that weren't exactly related to Delphi that um, we could do an entire episode on just him. Yeah. So Kagan Anthony Klein was born on May 27th, 1994, in Kokomo, Indiana. I'm not going to use Kagan's mother's name here, but his dad, Tony, whose real name is Jerry Anthony Klein, but he goes as Tony, got married, I believe, in 1986 to a woman who had two children from her first marriage, who, again, I will not use their names here either, but were Kagan's older half-siblings. Both siblings did interviews with the murder sheet and talked about the kind of stepfather Tony was, and to say the least, he was terrible. Both siblings made it sound like Kagan was the golden child who could do no wrong in Tony's eyes, and I have not found anything stating that Kagan was physically abused as a child, but there are so many other forms of abuse that could have played a role in how Kagan's mind developed as a child that helped mold him into the predator he's now accused of being. Yeah, like maybe Tony got him into it or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the same thing could have happened by Tony being buddy-buddy with him instead of a dad Mm -hmm. and showing him that these things are cool and Mm -hmm. not saying that's what happened, but that is... It's possible. That's the vibe I get, if I'm being honest. And I'm not one to believe in nature or nurture. Uh, To me, it'll always be a combination of both. People are born with some chemical imbalance or maybe a predisposition to violent behavior, but not all of these people end up committing violent crimes. It's said that all murderers are psychopaths, but not all psychopaths are murderers, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just because you're a psychopath doesn't mean you're going to be a murderer. No, there's lots of people who even struggle with being like, sociopaths and you know they work on that every day and they are aware of it Mm -hmm. and they talk to their doctor about it and they actually get help for it or they they i mean it's it's also said that heads of like ceos of huge companies corporations are psychopaths they don't they're not burdened by empathy and things that normal people are so they're able to step on people to get to where they want and they become rich by not caring basically about what other people yeah i'm sure some do like not care so yeah um debate me if you want to but i've seen enough firsthand to 100 percent believe this for a fact for this reason i'm going to look at tony briefly Um, by most accounts after the divorce tony had primary custody of kagan throughout his childhood kagan did live with his mother from time to time but there was never a time when tony was not a daily figure in kagan's upbringing According to the siblings, Tony was very controlling and violent towards them. They couldn't do anything without Tony's approval, even so much as get a glass of water. If they did that without first asking for Tony's permission, the result usually was some level of violence. The stepdaughter recounted a couple of disturbing events, one being that Tony gave her a head start before chasing her down and shooting her with a pellet gun. Another when he had chased her on a quad or a motorcycle or something, and um, she ended up falling and breaking her leg, I believe. It could have been her arm, but I, I think it was her leg. The stepson was also victim to Tony's abuse as well. He had unintentionally plugged a bathroom toilet. When the boy called for his mother to come in and help him, Tony came in and proceeded to freak out. Um, apparently, he smashed his head against the porcelain. And this broke his orbital bone in his eye socket. Um, He held the kid by his legs and dunked his head into the dirty, overfilled toilet bowl. 
this violent encounter resulted in the boy being taken to the hospital. And before that, if I remember correctly, you know, in order to get help and get away, that boy finally just ran away from Tony, got out of the house and was running down the street. And I'm pretty sure it was a neighbor that ended up helping him. Right. And the mother actually also received a beating from Tony for trying to intervene. Um, during the mother's beating, Tony bit her stomach, leaving a deep bite mark. Ugh. I do believe Tony was charged in this assault and the two separated shortly thereafter. The stepson did say that Tony was friends with some of the police officers and that nothing he ever did resulted in any meaningful consequences or change. Both siblings said that Tony has bipolar disorder, though they are not sure if he takes medication. Neither sibling has had contact with Tony over the years. However, both have had contact with Kagan throughout his life. So according to his siblings, Kagan has been known to lie about the most trivial things for his entire life. He would do things like Photoshop himself into pictures and try to pass them off as legitimate pictures of him in other places. His stepbrother called him out on one of these pictures specifically, and Kagan just laughed it off and basically said, I just wanted to see if you would notice. Like, what a weirdo. It's just embarrassing. It, it seems like he's comfortable <laughs> with being embarrassing. Yeah. Like, you know, he's like, well. Or he doesn't put that much thought into the consequences to, or what people are thinking of him. And then he just does it again. To put out, like, your rap career, you have to be okay with some form of embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like, you have to be okay with, um, you have to be okay with criticism in a way and even putting out a podcast putting out all of it there is a level of embarrassment when you hear yourself out there their show is the show is like you're probably gonna hate that later like i do and, every and episode, my I laugh right there probably went too high and i'm gonna blow it out and i'm gonna hate myself later so throughout Kagan's teen and adult life, his lies became his life. Here are some of the things that Kagan said about himself over the years, building this entirely different persona for himself. He said that he was the lead vocalist and guitar player of the pop punk band called Kagan Klein. Which is weird <laughs> that he's calling it a pop punk band when like, we listen to a couple of his songs and it's just... I mean, I guess I get it, but it's okay. I wouldn't call it that personally, but okay. And the lead vocalist and gu guitar player in a band that's named after himself. Just kind of, I wonder if he's the only member of the band. Well, for sure. Just like, like Eminem's the only band in his, well, I mean, I guess he even has, I don't know. I think he's more of like a liar. It's not even a liar, because technically it would be true if he strums the guitar into the mic and then he sings a song. <laughs> it's technically true, but it's just pathetic the way that he hyped himself up. He also said he'd formerly been a fill-in singer for the band Hail Royal. Never heard of it. Kagan also wrote his own wiki profile saying that he was an aspiring musician. It also read that he was managed by the Artery Foundation, like his music career was managed. So he had a manager for his big music career um, and that he had been playing poker in Vegas when he was apparently discovered and offered a job with the band called Beartooth. And I don't know what the truth is behind that, but he does have a song on Spotify that is produced by Beartooth. I don't know. The profile also said he went on tour with them for two months. Then he attended the Vans Warped Tour with this band in 2015, and he also went on to work on the Warped Tour in 2017. So a tour with this band is what he's saying in 2015, which he probably handed them like their waters or something. And then he probably swept the floor in 2017. Again, just assuming, but... I think we... I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I see him sitting in his basement or his bedroom for the entirety of 2016 and 2017. Every venue needs somebody there to sell the popcorn. He could have done that. Maybe he, he was could've. sweeping the floor. Like He could have, but also um, we'll get to it in just a few paragraphs here. But he also said that he was living in Vegas this whole time. So, I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Got to make your money somehow. I guess. Professional floor cleaner. Professional liar. <laughs> um, so in 2018, Kagan claims to have worked with bands like Taking Back Sunday, Panic at the Disco, Paramore, Hawthorne Heights, We the Kings, Boys Like Girls, and Mayday Parade. These are pretty big bands. I mean, they're not huge bands. They're, they're- huge. No, no, no. They are huge bands. Paramore is huge. Yeah, but they're no Metallica. They're not like... Metallica is so 90s. Those are huge bands today. Those are huge bands to the newer generation. I mean, he's... That being said, again, he did work with them. He shined their shoes, I'm sure. Whatever. (laughs) Didn't get out of his basement. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. He obviously did get out of his basement did you not hear his rap songs speaking of which he has his <laughs> spotify account where you can go and listen to his quote unquote music i use that word loosely because it's just not good yeah and that music is really interesting though because like it, you're like it doesn't match his voice and it sounds like somebody else and i don't know if that's auto-tune or what and probably he, he doesn't have tiger king money you know what i mean he's not paying a <coughs> music artist to sing the song so he can do the music video so it's him it's just crazy that the voice is so different than the like disgusting image that is keg and klein proceed his rap lyrics are disturbing, and even if you're okay with that, his voice to me is disgusting. It's probably because of the horrendous crimes. My ears just hears garbage, but I also don't hear Kagan's voice in those songs. So normally I wouldn't have gone and listened to this, but I did for this podcast. Um, so you're welcome. You don't have to go and pollute yourself <laughs> if you don't want to. But if you're anything like me... You'll go and listen just to be like, <laughs> yeah, Bree totally went and she listened when I said it was there. She went and she listened and I had a good cry laugh. I yeah. made fun of it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the artwork for his, for his songs, it's, is also very disturbing. Like, let's be real here. So he was very bold in his lies. Kegan's Facebook showed many different jobs in Las Vegas, including a bail bondsman, a blackjack dealer, um, a cannabis supplier, which is legalized in Vegas, and a student at the university there. So going back through the edit history of his Facebook page, once his name was publicly connected to the Delphi case, sleuthers were able to see that he had gone back and added jobs, changed dates to give himself an alibi for February 2017, before and after. Um, It's speculation, but I think it's safe to say that all of this was a lie. People followed up with certain employers that Kagan claimed to work for, and without exception, every employer that Kagan lists on that resume denied ever having Kagan work for them. I would like to say that, I mean, if, even if he did work there, once you know that somebody's being arrested in relation to crimes against children, you don't want to be associated. You'll say no. But then Tony had also gone back on his own Facebook page and added posts and changed dates to back up some of Kagan's claims, all of which I believe are lies. Horrible. Um, It did come out that Kagan did live in Las Vegas for a few months, but moved home because he couldn't afford his rent. But his Facebook profile made it seem like he lived there for a number of years, which has been proven to be lies. I mean, like... No wonder he wanted to live there. It was definitely his dad who got him into the Vegas, like, lifestyle, in a way. Like, if your dad's taking you to a brothel. Anyway, we'll get there. Go ahead. (laughs) So now I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit here because I think it's the best way to lay out all of the information we need to get into. Uh, Basically, we're going to start talking about when and how Kagan first became known to law enforcement. So around February 19th, and the date is not confirmed, a 14-year-old girl had made plans to meet up with a boy that she had been talking to online. She gave him her address with plans for him to come over while her parents weren't home the following week. The actual planned day for the meeting is not known to the public, but I'm sure law enforcement has that information. So on February 20th, as the girl was walking home from where the school bus had dropped her off, 
she saw a man wearing a ski mask peering into her bedroom window. This obviously scared the girl, and so she called her mom, who in turn called the police. During that investigation, the police discovered that the boy she had been talking to online and had given her address to was Anthony Schatz. And you know what's very interesting about that? I just, I wonder why the person in the ski mask, whether it was Kagan, Tony, whoever it was, why didn't they just wait till the following week to see if the, the plan worked out for them? You know what I mean? What plan? To meet her when her parents weren't there. Open the door, push her in. Like, I'm just wondering why they didn't action their plan differently. Why were, why were they so careless to have to get a look at her before? No, I feel like they were And if it was Tegan. For, I'm looking, I'm thinking that he was looking for a way to get into her house before she got home so he would be lying in wait. But she again, he it could have him. been so easy. He had it set up in a different way. Yeah, but if you're way. expecting to meet Anthony Schatz and somebody like Kagan or Tony is there instead, you're you're not going to let them in your house. I guess if there is a window for her to see, but mm-hmm. I just imagine her opening the door and being like, whoa, and then, but it's too late by that time. How many That's times do you true. see it, right? Very true. It's and just very interesting. I don't know. And this police report has never been made public, so we don't know the details for sure. Yeah, so that's fair. So further investigation revealed that the IP address and home address to where that online profile was during the conversations. Remember now, this is just a little over a week after Libby and Abby were found murdered. By this time, I suspect the police had known Libby was also talking to Anthony Schatz online as well. We don't know that for sure, but we come to find out that law enforcement did make that connection at some point. So on February 25th, 2017, just 11 days after the bodies of Abby and Libby were discovered in Delphi, the Indiana State Police, or the ISP, as I'll call them from here on out, the FBI and local police served a search warrant at a house on Canal Street in Peru, um, where that IP address led them. The house was occupied by Kagan Klein and his father, Tony, and according to a probable cause affidavit, which is heavily redacted, the ISP detective said that he was working on another case when they were contacted by the FBI, who informed them that an adult male in Indiana was soliciting juvenile females on Instagram and Snapchat using a catfish profile by the name of Anthony Schatz. Like I said, the address of the home in Peru that law enforcement served the search warrant on, um, as well as Kagan Klein's father's name, were all redacted. Now, the ISP and the FBI sent subpoenas to Instagram and Snapchat, and they found out that the Anthony Schatz Instagram account had been started on July 20th, 2016, and the Anthony Schatz Snapchat account had been started a week prior on July 14th, 2016. So really quickly... The pictures used by Kagan for this Anthony Schatz account belonged to a man who did used to be a teen model. He had absolutely no knowledge that his photos were being used in this way, and he's horrified and is cooperating with law enforcement. I assume he's probably going to be part of the trial, Kagan's trial. Um, This man is married. He lives in Alaska with his wife and daughter, and he is actually a police officer. Yeah, and I would assume that he'll be part of the trial, but very quickly. Mm-hmm. Probably just to identify that the photos were indeed his, and where they were posted. Permission. Yeah. yeah. So this search warrant was executed on February 25th, 2017 at 1230 in the afternoon. And they interviewed Kagan as well as his father. They also removed several electronic devices from the property. During his interview, Kagan initially denied creating a fake profile for social media, and he denied contacting underage girls. But later, he would admit that he had been the one using the Anthony Schatz profile, and he had been talking to underage girls on these apps. Kagan said that he would find the girls on Instagram, reach out to them knowing their ages, because he would ask them during the conversations, so he would talk to them knowing how old they were, and if a girl told him that she was under the age of 16, he said that he wouldn't care and would still pursue conversations with them. These conversations, I have no doubt, were sexual in nature or inappropriate, given the fact that they are in the affidavit, and most of the things in the affidavit with these conversations are heavily redacted. Um, They're just blacked out. But the gist of it all is he would build trust with them, flirt with them, 
and he was using pictures of this young man um, or pictures of stacks of cash or fancy expensive horse sports cars to lure them in. And then he would suggest that they move the conversation over to Snapchat. And how did we know that it was Tony Klein's name that was redacted if it was? Because he was the other resident in that house. And there's nobody else? Nobody else. Okay. They had a dog. They had a dog? What was the dog's name? Cujo, I believe. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the hell is wrong with these people? <laughs> now, I don't think there are a lot of underage girls listening to our podcast. But I know many of you who are here with me today are parents, mothers, or fathers of young girls, and you want to keep them protected at all costs, I'm sure. And I can tell you right now that this is a huge red flag. In 2017, Fortune.com posted an article that was entitled, Snapchat's most popular feature is making it tougher to catch pedophiles. Tougher, but not even close to being impossible. So all you creepers out there, they can still pull it. The article goes on to say that law enforcement officials warn that pedophiles have been increasingly using Snapchat as their go-to sexual exploitation tool, specifically because of one of the Snapchat features, which is the disappearing message tool. And this would have been a couple of years ago. 2017. So Yeah. so like Six years ago. The new app is very much TikTok that pedophiles are using mm-hmm. to find... And Roblox and they always find... For sure, but TikTok is super bad right now. Like mm-hmm. Roblox is, you know, there's there's parental settings and there is for TikTok too, but they are not used as much and they honestly should be because there are a lot of men with fake profiles that pretend to be other little girls who are just constantly looking for their next victims, honestly. And mm-hmm. the amount of um not even just underage girls, but young girls making some inappropriate tiktoks like it's called a for you page and pedophiles use it for just that like the algorithm is sending those videos to them straight to their phone they don't have to even search for it anymore yeah they don't have to put the words in they don't have to be tracked tiktok is doing it for them i know it's bizarre yesterday justin was saying that he was hungry and he kept asking what's for supper what's for supper and like half an hour later, he's like, why is my TikTok only showing me food? It's videos a now? thing. And it's quick. Yep. Like you it's say quick. something and TikTok knows it and that's your for you page now. It really is. It's or crazy. somebody else sends you a video and then you talk about it for a second. All your for you page is that thing. It's crazy. The Brookings Institute examined 78 cases of sextortion, which is a form of extortion where a person threatens to expose sexual images of another person if they don't do something um, that usually involves sending more pictures, um, usually more graphic pictures. Um, So the person's going to be like, I have pictures. I'm going to blackmail you unless you do this. I'm going to do that. Um, They get to the victims get to a point where they're so ashamed and they're scared. They don't think they have anybody they can turn to. Um, So they either give in and send what the perpetrator wants, or there have been other cases where they end their lives. Like it gets pretty serious. Yeah. Um, They dig themselves into this hole and they feel like they can't get out and they feel like they can't turn to anybody for help. Now, the 78 cases examined by the Brookings Institute involved at least 1,397 victims, and 71% of them were under the age of 18. Social media apps like Snapchat were used in 91% of these cases. So if you're a parent, let your child know that if someone contacts them on an app like Facebook or Instagram, and then all of a sudden they want the conversation moved over to Snapchat, It's a red flag, and it's most likely for one reason alone to start talking about sexual things or to ask for pictures or videos. That's usually why, especially the person talking to an underage girl, that's what they want, and that's why they want the conversation moved over to Snapchat. Obviously, this is disturbing, but it's also very eerie because we know that on the day that Abby and Libby were kidnapped, they were actively using Snapchat which is going to lead to the obvious question. Is it known that Libby had been communicating with Anthony Schatz or Kagan Klein, come to find out, before their death? 
we know that they know that now, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Yeah. So Keegan had gotten approximately 20 videos from underage girls. And in these videos, the girls would be performing sex acts on themselves. And then Kagan would use the videos to perform sex acts on himself, if you know what I mean. It's not known if Libby or Abby was in any of the videos. During his interview with police, Kagan told law enforcement that he'd fucked up and that he should have already left. He and his father had been in Vegas, like I said, for a planned vacation. When they returned on the 25th, the day that the search warrant was served, Kagan said that he had already packed a bag and his plan was to leave. I guess, run away from home, even though he was an adult, (laughs) but he was waiting for his dad to go to sleep that night. And his plan was to go back to Vegas. Oh my gosh. Kagan was brought into the police station and given a polygraph test. But the questions asked during this polygraph were based on a different case, according to the affidavit. However, the case they are referring to is redacted, but I think it's safe to assume that it was Delphi related. Um, I would also assume, but mm -hmm. yeah, we don't know. There's no indication of whether Kagan passed or failed the polygraph, but after taking it, Kagan was returned to his father's house at 7.30 that evening. And uh, remember that time because it's going to be relevant in a few minutes uh, because, like I said, multiple electronic devices had been seized from the home that Kagan was living in. Um, we'll go through each device in the phone, but there's there's two specifically that weren't found during the search warrant um, that it was found to have been manipulated before being handed over to police. Yeah. Like he said, like, right. Oops, you guys forgot this one. And right. I wanted to be a good Samaritan and bring it to you. Cause I have nothing to hide. Right. And he's stupid. And yeah, he didn't know that they would find out everything that he did with it before they handed. Right. Before and, he handed it in. And that's why the time that Kagan got home, dropped off by the police after the polygraph at seven thirty PM, That's why it's important because police were able to go back and see exactly what time he touched that phone to turn it on to go on to these apps and start deleting information. And when they asked him why he did that, I'm pretty sure, didn't he say that because he was scared or whatever? No. Well, oh, what did he say? It was actually good. He said that at first he said that the lady that was interviewing him told him to go home and delete everything right now. And the the cop was like, no, she didn't. Like, the police would not tell you to go and delete evidence. I th- no, I thought it was his therapist. No, it was a it was a woman investigator who was, was it? yeah. And then he had changed his story, and he said, no, well, she didn't say that. She just basically said, I had to stop doing what I was doing. It was wrong. Blah blah blah. Oh, and, see, I misinterpreted. And we're talking about the exact same part of the yeah. interview. I thought it was his counselor or therapist. Yeah, no, it was officer. a police officer. Unlikely, Kagan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we're going to go through each device and what was found on them. So there's an Apple iPhone 4, which had the name Kagan's iPhone. It had last been used November 11th, 2016. And the person who had been using the phone, which I think we can safely assume was Kagan himself. um, Yeah, because it's found in his house and it's called Kagan's iPhone. Right. Showed that Kagan had communicated with teenage girls and shared media files depicting CSAM which stands for Child Sexual Abuse Materials. Some of these files showed female children between the ages of 12 and 17 posing nude or partially nude, as well as performing sex acts on themselves. Other files located depicted children between the ages of 3 and 11 in a sex act with an adult. Now here's something that just sets me off and I just see red. First of all, anyone who takes pleasure from watching the sexual abuse of a child as young as three or 11 or at any age needs to die like today. I'm not calling for violence. I'm not saying I'm going to do anything or that I want our listeners to go out and they're doing anything or be vigilantes or anything like that. So don't like get it twisted. All I'm saying is they need to not be here anymore. Secondly, let's just call it what it is. I mean, okay, well, for the last part, I mean, our justice system needs to be the ones to do it. No, you don't need vigilantes. We need our justice system to do its job. And, you know, we hold murder so high up, but, you know, sexual abuse, 
like molestation, all of it, it doesn't get treated as severely as it should be. If there is without a reasonable doubt, like a video of you raping or sexually assaulting a child, you should either be in prison for life to try and deter other people from ever doing it again, or you should be on death row, in my opinion, and that will really, really drop those numbers. You know what I'm saying? People start actually thinking twice before they act on that shit. And let's just call it what it is. What was on his devices weren't a child engaged in a sex act with an adult. It is the child being sexually abused mm -hmm. or a child being raped, sealing every ounce of innocence and joy and having their childhood stripped from a little human being in an instant. Their lives will never be the same and then add insult to injury. This sick fuck, excuse my language. Then these pedophiles, they share this incredibly violent and disturbing assaults with other sick fucks. Again, excuse my language. So they can all get off on it. And it's just, it's wrong. And they just need to be put away somewhere else. Just removed from our society completely. Yeah. Like, like I said, like, it's just like, why not hammer down on such a common issue that is so detrimental to so many people's struggles and mental health? Like, you want to talk about mental health? So many people that I know. Start there. Start sure. there. And it's like, just do more. Just do more. Do better. Do yeah. better. So there were also a lot of other photos on this phone of Kagan himself. Um, so in some photos, he was holding a black handgun. Um, that could then, have been for a photo shoot, you know, his rap career. Probably, yeah. And he was wearing like a bandana, like a total badass. Oh, God. Um, so May 14th, 2016, Kagan had communicated with another party whose identity has not been revealed because apparently... It's our job or law enforcement's job or the legal system's job to protect pedophiles' privacy. I don't understand why we're doing that. And I know what everybody's going to say, that everybody is, they're innocent until proven guilty. But come on, we've got evidence pointing us right in our face. And to me, I don't need to wait for a jury trial to decide that that person is a piece of shit. Yeah. I know exactly what's what when I see the evidence in front of me and I say, Post his name, make it public so that his his neighbors know what he is. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? We should not be protecting these people in any way, shape, or form. And there, it's different cases for sure. Like Charged or not, not because he's communicating and sending these Yeah. Images. We're not talking about he said, she said That's cases. Right. We're talking about... Cold, hard facts. You sent this to this known pedophile and it is illegal material. Yeah, it exactly. is sexual abuse of a child. You're guilty... Your name is public so that everybody knows what you are yeah. and they can protect their children from you. Just, mm -hmm. ugh, I get so heated. Okay. Anyways, Kagan was communicating with this other individual and he shared a Dropbox link containing CSAM files. Allegedly, Kagan would communicate with underage girls using the Anthony Schatz profile as well as another profile, Emily Ann 45. So this Emily Ann profile was also used to chat with other pedophile men to exchange CSAM materials. The Emily and that was a kick account? Emily Ann um, was on kick, kick. But also Instagram and stuff. Okay. Yeah, no, it was just one of his... If Anthony Schatz was his main, Emily Ann was his secondary. Okay. Account. So the Emily Ann account was also on another device taken from the client's home, a Samsung Galaxy S4 and we'll talk about that one in a minute. Most of the communications using that device happened on Snapchat and Kick, which is a messaging app. Yeah. And these conversations were recovered. Um, they're in the affidavit, but they're also redacted. And I think for good reason. Um, the Internet is full of insane people who would track these victims down for interviews or God knows what else. And uh, putting their names out there would just re-victimize them. So I'm all for redacting. We don't need to know all the gory details of what these children were put through. And if it's put out there, obviously other predators would use that yeah. for their own gain. And it's like, like really re-victimizing mm, those no. people. Yeah. 
So next we have an iPhone 3 and the name of this phone was Keggy with a smile emoji. I'm going out on a limb here and assume that Keggy is some kind of a nickname for Kagan. Well, I wonder because he did have a girlfriend at some point. I wonder if that's what she called him or something. Aw, that's gross. It's gross, but it just makes me think of like, did she ever have access to that phone? Did she create it for him? Mm. Um, any of that, you know? So this Keggy phone was last used on May 23rd, 2015. No chat conversations were recovered from the phone that were of evidentiary value, but there were multiple images recovered of women posing nude or partially nude, although the ages of all the women were not able to be determined. Kagan had saved over 200 images to this phone, either images that had been sent to him or that he had downloaded, and approximately 27 of these images depicted females who appeared to be under the age of 14. Some of these 27 pictures were geostamp located and lead back to Indiana cities like Bunker Hill, Galveston, Indianapolis, Kokomo, Monterey, and Royal Center. The web history from this phone was also recovered, and there was a list of search items that Keg and Klein had Googled, and they were listed in the affidavit, but they've been redacted. Um, next, we have the Galaxy Samsung S4, which was last used on June 25th, 2015. The affidavit states that this device had been powered on multiple times after that date, but showed no usage. I wonder if they're able to tell if whoever turned it on, if they'd done so just to look through the pictures and videos that they have saved on the phone. Um, when they say no usage, it could simply mean that no messages were sent or no calls were made. The internet wasn't accessed, but it makes sense if the person is turning the phone on multiple times not really using it, but just looking over their disgusting picture collection. It's possible. Conversations had also been deleted from this device, but the ones that remained showed that Kagan had been talking to multiple females, some of whom appeared to be as young as 12 or 13. And he had done this using two profiles, a profile whose handle was just Kagan Klein, and then that Emily Ann profile was used to talk to girls. Conversations were recovered where the Emily Ann profile talked to young girls and were discussing having sex with Kagan and his father at the same time. So early on, it was believed that Emily was Kagan's um, stepsister. stepsister or half-sister's name. But we now know, well, I don't think that she'd tell us her real name anyways, but during that murder sheet interview, they asked her straight out if her name was Emily or if she thought that... Um, this Emily Ann account was named for her and she said no my name is not Emily I we don't have an Emily in the family and I I want to believe the the sister because she doesn't have any reason to lie absolutely no reason to lie in the affidavit the detective actually wrote that Emily was communicating with these girls and he put Emily's name in quotation which leads me to believe that they don't think that it was truly an Emily speaking it was probably Kagan using the profile to catfish these young girls into thinking that he too was a young girl and having a conversation about him as a young girl, having sex with two grown men. That's a grooming tactic, leading these juvenile girls that he was talking to into thinking that this kind of thing was normal and happens all the time. Multiple CSAM files were also found and it was indicated that they had been captured from Skype and Snapchat using the screen grab function on his cell phone. Many of these images showed females approximately 12 to 17 years of age, and the internet searches were recovered, but they were redacted in the affidavit. So a notebook tablet was also seized, and the last time that tablet had been used was on March 9th, 2016. There were many chat conversations recovered from it, um, from social media platforms like Facebook, um, Facebook Messenger, Kick, MeetMe.com, Skype, and Snapchat. The M.O. of Kagan Klein during these conversations was to meet girls on Instagram or Facebook and then move the conversation onto Snapchat or Skype. So there's also an Apple iPod Touch. This iPod went by the name Kagan Smiley Face. Um, it was last used on May 30th, 2015. And on this device, there are multiple images of females on the iPod. Some of them contain location data from Hammond or Royal City in Indiana. Internet searches were pulled from that device, but once again redacted in the affidavit. 
There's two other phones that we haven't gone through yet, but like I said before, that's because the situation with them is a little bit different because there's evidence that they were tampered with before uh, law enforcement got their hands on them. So one of them is a Samsung Galaxy S5, which was named Klein Photography. It had been factory reset two days before the search warrant was executed, which was on February 25th. This kind of lines up with Kagan's story about this phone. He said that he found it in an Uber car in Vegas, and instead of turning it in to anybody, he just thought he'd cape it, and he factory reset it. And it's a Samsung, so it has a good camera, and he, he called it good. his photography. That's right. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so um, that's the story with that one. Rude. But law enforcement was able to recover some chat messages from that device, and apparently conversations on that device was about meeting people in Vegas and for prostitution. Um, the affidavit does not say whether the conversations that took place between February 23rd and 25th were about going to get a sex worker or having already been with one, but the search history also recovered from the device had been redacted. And when Kagan Klein was first interviewed, he actually said that they were they were going to go to the bunny ranch, which mm, yeah. is a brothel um, to get <laughs> head, to get Ugh. blowjobs. <laughs> he and his dad were taking a trip to a brothel to get blowjobs, but it was going to be too expensive. And then like also on the phones, Kagan also searched for information on the Delphi investigation. He searched for things like how long does DNA stay on a body? Um, and he read incessantly about the Abby and Libby case. Yeah, the he ongoing replayed investigation. It. Yeah, videos, and he replayed it yeah. and searched over and, and the over bridge and over. guy thing. He was playing like, the, the voice the sound, down the hill. Yeah, yeah, he was playing it. I think they said he played it six times in a row. I thought it was even more than that. When asked about it, he was like, "Well, yeah, I'm interested, just like everybody yeah, else." Yeah, I'm trying to see if I know the guy. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess we did that, but I didn't talk to them. Mm -hmm. But he also, disturbingly, he searched for. Pictures of Sandy Hook victims. Yeah. And like, how do you explain that one away? Yeah. But when they said he that. He was more offended that what does that have to do with this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He was like. He didn't even know what was wrong with he that was saying, search. He was saying you're insinuating that I'm searching that to get like gratification. He's like, I'm not. It's like, Kate, but what we're saying is that you talk to little girls and now you're looking at the murder of one of the little girls and then just randomly a very specific thing that you're looking at is Sandy Hook. Yeah, the murder of many children. So now Kagan claimed that his main phone that he had most often used was an Apple iPhone 5C, but he said he didn't have it and he didn't know where it was during the search warrant. He was instructed to find the iPhone and turn it over. So on February 27th, two days after the search warrant was executed, Kagan contacted the ISP Cyber Crimes Unit to inform them that he found the iPhone 5C, and on March 2nd, the ISP obtained the device. And we're not sure what took them so long to grab it, but there you have it. Um, so the iPhone 5C had been named Kagan's iPhone and had last been used on February 27th, 2017. Before Kagan had turned it over to police, though, he had deleted a lot of stuff from it. Uh, the 5C had been using the app Facebook, Meet Me, Snapchat, and Twitter. Much of the data from these apps had been deleted, even though there were plenty of pictures from those apps that had been saved to the phone's gallery, which showed nude females. A digital forensics report showed that on February 25th, less than two hours after being dropped back off at home after the polygraph test, Remember I said it's 7 o'clock or whatever it was? So by 9.19 p.m., he uninstalled and deleted Snapchat. He uninstalled and deleted Instagram the next day on February 26th at 1.12 p.m. Kagan uninstalled and deleted Meet Me, and then he reinstalled Snapchat, but 24 hours later at 1.28 p.m. on February 27th, Kagan again uninstalled and deleted Snapchat. He probably got bored and just wanted it back for a second. Mm-hmm. So he basically put Snapchat back on his phone and had it up for 24 hours before he deleted it again. What was he doing in that 24 hours? Who knows? Maybe I mean, he was making sure it, was re it wasn't going to reload. They already have all of the proof. I think he was probably just doing one last hurrah. 
Oh, really? He was being charged with it. It's on every single device. He probably thought, fuck it. Very possible. Who knows? So on the same day, February 27th, Kagan also deleted the Safari web browsing history and website data from the iPhone. Um, Some information from the phone was recovered, but it had also been redacted in the affidavit. So absolutely bizarrely, Kagan was not arrested in February of 2017 when all of these disgusting things he did were all known. Um, But he was free to go live his life as normal. I mean, maybe they were tailing him, too. Maybe Maybe they were watching him. Maybe. Totally. But it wasn't until August of 2020 when he was finally arrested. Um, He was picked up at his girlfriend's apartment and charged with 30 felony counts, including child exploitation, possession of child pornography, and obstruction of justice. Um, Those charges were based off of the information they had that he had been manipulating and deleting information basically getting rid of evidence. Um, December 2021, the ISP went, they released a YouTube video that went on to ask the public to come forward if anyone had communicated with the Anthony Schatz profile in 2016 or 2017. And that's the same profile that we know Kagan Klein was using during those years. And now it's pretty clear to me that at least law enforcement believe there may be some connection between Kagan Klein and Abby and Libby. And it's not hard to see why. So the murder sheet also released the interrogation transcript from Kagan's August 2020 arrest. An interesting section as it relates to the Delphi murders is taking place in this part of the police interview. Is the police saying to Kagan, on the morning of the murders, February 13, 2017, there are two mobile devices accessing one Snapchat account from the home you share with your dad. One phone, log on, log off. Second phone, log on, log off, etc. And Kagan's explanation for this is frankly laughable. What it actually shows is how stupid he is. His excuse, his reasoning for this, is he's using both devices at the same time. He's got them both open. Basically says that it allows him to message more women at the same time and it makes things more efficient. So this is the story he's trying to get the police to believe, but basically the police know and let him know that it doesn't make sense. When you log on from one device, it's going to kick you out of the other. They even say to Kagan straight out that the language in vernacular is clearly two different people communicating in the chats. The punctuation is different. Kagan never cracks, though. He never admits that his dad or anyone else uses his accounts to his knowledge. I think that one day that, like, if it was his dad... He will have to come out with it because I don't understand why he would protect his dad for this long. Like, there's there's no reason for it when he's got to eventually get angry mm-hmm. at where he is in his life, especially if Tony introduced some of this uh, criminal behavior mm-hmm. into Kagan's oh, life. I totally agree with you. So also on the day of the murders, Kagan's phone searched for the Marathon gas station in Delphi, which is only a few blocks from the Moan and High Bridge Trail where Abby and Libby went missing. The FBI went to retrieve the CCTV video from that gas station from that day, but incredibly, the evidence was lost. Um, A source told the murder sheet that Kagan had confessed to law enforcement that he had waited in his dad's red Jeep while someone else committed the murder. I don't understand this lie. Why... Why are we lying about this? It's so bizarre. But no charges or any information has come of this supposed confession. Um, In 2022, Kagan had been interviewed a number of times by law enforcement. In the interrogation, law enforcement stated that the Ski Mask Girl incident started the largest child pornography investigation in the history of the state of Indiana. They clearly have a lot of information to uncover and investigation to do. Related or not, but the number of CSAM arrests made since Kagan's crimes have come to light is staggering. Maybe they're just more publicized now, but to me, it seems like there are more and more arrests made in Indiana each week. Could you imagine if they're all related to Kagan Klein in that drop box? Could you imagine? Like this one POS has opened this can of worms that's going to put so many dirt bags behind bars. Love it. Literally, it's crazy. So in August of 2022, Kagan was put into the custody of the Indiana State Police for an interview. 
He was taken from the Miami County Jail to an Air Force base for questioning. Some speculated that this was to ensure anonymity or confidentiality. Others wonder if he met with investigators from other jurisdictions for other cases. Uh, We don't know. What we do know is that immediately following this interview, a large search began at the Wabash River in Peru. The bridge and water where the search focused was quite close to the house where Kagan lived with his dad. Week after week, searchers combed the river. They had reconstruction professionals out on the bridge measuring distances and water flow levels. Law enforcement would not talk about the search or giving any indication of why they were there or what they were looking for, so speculation went wild. By mid-September, the search wrapped up, and law enforcement said they did not find what they were looking for, but never said what they were looking for or why they were looking for it. Um, We didn't know what to think or believe about that search, but it lasted six weeks. That is a long time and a lot of money and a lot of resources. Just bizarre. But also in July and August, the fire pit in Tony's parents' backyard was also searched, but that also failed. Nothing was found that was connected to the Delphi case, as far as we know. After the search of the Wabash River, almost as if it may be connected, five of Kagan's charges were dropped. Coincidence? Or did he lead them to the river for some evidence and was rewarded because they did indeed find something? Maybe not, but maybe. So about three weeks after the river search had concluded, on October 13th, 2022, Law enforcement served a search warrant at the home of Richard M. Allen. Nothing about the search was known or released at the time. Two weeks after that search warrant, Richard Allen was arrested and charged with two counts of felony murder in Abby and Libby's case. You should go back and listen to Chapter 3 for a rundown of the Delphi murder case. So Kagan's CSAM trial also keeps getting put off. And again, coincidentally now, his dates are lining up with that of Richard Allen's court dates. Kagan's trial is set for June of 2023, and Richard's pre-trial and bail hearings are also set for June of 2023. Yeah, so I mean, June's going to be pretty interesting unless somebody gets pushed again, Mm -hmm. which I could fully see both getting pushed. And I'm pretty sure that I mentioned it in the Delphi episode that Richard did plead not guilty to his felony murder charges. Yeah. Um, And that only comes to mind because it truly bothers me in the Idaho case that Brian Kohlberger still hasn't even entered a plea and he won't be doing so until also June. So we are all caught up on the Kagan Klein saga, but this one definitely calls for a bookmark because it's far from resolved. Um, We're going to keep watching both cases and bring any and all significant updates to you here on True Crime Story. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.